0: Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely.
1: God doesn't single us out to harm us. He loves us. And I know, I know that he was with my son in his dying moments and I know he comforted him and I know that, that. My son is where he was created to be before he was on this earth, and I stewarded him for 19 years. God made him, and God brought him home, and God has him, and he's in a better place than he ever. And that's a silly thing to say. He's in a better place now. Don't say that right after somebody dies. It's true, though, and it turns out to be comforting in the end. that I know that the purpose of Mitch dying was not so I could figure some stuff about my life out. But it's one of those quantum physics things, again, that we talked about. Two things can be true at the same time. And if because Mitch died, I am refined and bettered, then some good can come out of that great tragedy that's helpful to other people.
0: Welcome to Self-Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests. To better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others the self-helpful podcast is presented by ziggler your premier source for equipping coaches visit ziggler.com hello self-helpful listeners in this episode committing Two ideals while having grace, you won't be 100%. I'm back with Dr. Lee Warren for part two in this series. And this is my values and habits show. Lee is a war veteran, author, podcaster, and active brain surgeon. In part one, we discussed the message in his new book, Hope is the First Dose a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. And we led off with the story of his 19-year-old son, Mitch, who died from multiple stab wounds in the neck and what will forever be an unsolved mystery. Here, we walk through the primary areas of life and it's in the area of relationships where Lee talks about his values and his intent to never allow discomfort in his relationships, not allowing it to continue, Uh, but his commitment to get it sorted out that's what his commitment is and not in the day with possible regrets which sounds valiant and then he added that he doesn't handle all of that perfectly but it's an ideal and i so appreciate that as i feel we often have big ideals or we want them but then we fall short and we can abandon them or just feel guilty join us as lee walks us through the key areas of life and the values he has and the ideals he strives to walk out with grace it is interesting as i look at this part two the values and habits show as being the behind the scenes and as i talked about i think our first talk your life your story is behind the scenes of your life which i'm so grateful that you shared with but um but we're gonna walk through these and pull some more stuff out of you as we look at the first category here of spiritual i mean i know you as a faith-based guy and yet we all evolve and change and grow. And so uh, even from the last time we talked, I'm interested in, yeah, where would you say your highlights of, of what you value for your own spirituality today? What is that?
1: Um. Well, I, I mean, I, I value my spirituality because I see it as the core of, of who I am. Um I, well, especially, I think it's very clarifying when you lose a child or some some of these big things happen, like you really come face to face with, do I believe the things I've always said I believe? Yeah. And, and one of those, of course, for Christians is we have this belief that we get to have an afterlife and we get to see people when they're resurrected and all that. And that becomes really important to you when the question is, do I ever get to see my son again or not? It becomes very clarifying and, and and right away it was like, Am I gonna be a person who is cast into the abyss of hopelessness because I don't really believe that and I think I've lost him forever? And that was unacceptable to me. So I, I, I think I really had an opportunity to investigate what I really believe. And am I just a guy who says he's a Christian or do I really believe this is true? And And then that was a key moment for me when I said, I really do believe it. I really do believe it. And the reason I believe that is because a lot of the promises I could see in Scripture started coming true for me after I lost mission. One of them is Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And I would feel like just this. You can't describe it. It sounds metaphysical, but it's spiritual where you're in the worst moment, the worst pain, the hardest thing you've ever gone through. And you just you just know you're not alone. And and so I think value, like like this promise has started coming true. And I started saying, this really is who I am. It really is what I believe. I know I get to see my son again. And that's why I can keep going tomorrow and get up and put my pants on tomorrow and not just drink myself into oblivion because I know it's true. And that's that's become a a life giving sort of source of power for me is like, I don't doubt that anymore. And it took that, I don't want to say it took losing my son. It sounds like, well, your faith wasn't very strong. But I think having to, to answer the question for myself in real life is what made it real for me.
0: I am going to take the opportunity, Lee, to ask the elementary question. But with what you have gone through of believing in God, believing in, a, I assume, a sovereign God who, um. I don't have a personal faith that would say that God made it happen, made your son die. But, uh, I would say that I, I, I believe he, he allowed to if he is all powerful and, and why, you know, we'll, we'll never, I'll never know. I'll never understand. But on that, you've got to have been asked that many times of, you know, your own perspective on a, a God that would, allow this to to happen um and go as far with that as you want to
1: we're not going into the superficial stuff in this episode are we that's, uh-uh. that's, we're going to, we're going deep I, but, man, know, if, this
0: is, this is, if we were sitting down together over a coffee this is this is what i you know i think I, about this I, stuff I, with my own kids
1: you know it's 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 such an important question too and again I said earlier, I'm not a grief expert. And you said, yes, you are, because you're grieving. And I'm not a theologian either. Um, so I don't, um, I'm not going to make some big theological argument about does God allow suffering or why does God allow suffering? But I'll tell you how it plays out for me. Because yep. I think that's where it, that's where the rubber meets the road, as far as I'm concerned, is scripture. So, So first of all, people have a lot of ideas about God that are ideas from culture or society, but they're not really in the Bible. Yeah. And so if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, then if you're going to say something to be true about him, you need to know what the Bible says about it. And so that's one of the things I did is, is what does the Bible really say about suffering? Um, And the best book I've ever read about that, by the way, um, is If God is Good by Randy Alcorn, which is an unbelievable unpacking of, if that question is God good or not. And what does the Bible say about that? So Randy Alcorn is just a tremendous resource. And then somebody gave me two days after my son died a book, this thick from Timothy Keller called walking with God through pain and suffering. And earlier we talked about things you shouldn't say to people right after they lose somebody, and that we should have another conversation sometime about things you ought not to do. And one of the things you ought not to do is give somebody a book on pain and suffering the day after their son dies. I and saw it's, you it's, wrote that. It's, yeah. It's, it's going to be a doorstop, you know, for a few years, yeah. but that turns out to be a grace because ultimately I picked it up and I read it and it was very incredibly helpful to me. So, so that being said, my approach to big questions like that does God kill people to make a point? to you in your life i don't think so um my my theology then is informed by trying to look at what the bible actually says about god and what the bible says about god is that he loves each of us he has created each of us for a purpose with a plan and with a timeline that's a specific and appointed timeline for each of us paul says it in acts that God, He sets the boundaries of your life. He sets the the times and, and knows the places of your, that your days will encounter. David says, "All the days of my life were written in your book before one of them came to be." Um, so, so I believe that God allows free will. That because of sin, there is there's a, a cost, and that cost is that we have disease we have evil we have illness we have all those things and somehow he can work all of that stuff out to where each of us is challenged with an encounter with him at some point where we have to decide if we believe him or not and that works together for good that verse we talked about earlier in Romans eight twenty eight. what happens is over time you can see that in fact that that verse is often misquoted people say God works everything out for good for those that love him. but the back half of that verse and the next verse says, "God works everything for good for those who love." Th- those are I'm misquoting it. Now, we know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose to conform us to Christ. So, the second p- part of it is that the reason it works out for good is because it helps you become more like Him. And becoming more like him helps you overcome a lot of the hard things that happen in your life because he overcame them first. I mean, you've not been crucified for something you didn't do. You've been through really hard things. But he went through that thing and modeled for us a way that you can grieve and recover and and forgive and love and do all those things. So, so again, I'm very long-winded because it's a very big question. Yeah, I know. The big answer is, or the short answer is God doesn't single us out to harm us. He loves us. And I know, I know that he was with my son in his dying moments. And I know he comforted him. And I know that that my son is where he was created to be. Before he was on this earth and I stewarded him for 19 years, God made him and God brought him home and God has him and he's in a better place than he ever. And that's a silly thing to say. He's in a better place now. Don't say that right after somebody dies. It's true, though. And it turns out to be comforting in the end that I know that the purpose of Mitch dying was not so I could figure some stuff about my life out. But it's one of those quantum physics things, again, that we talked about. Two things can be true at the same time. And if because Mitch died, I am refined and bettered, then some good can come out of that great tragedy that's helpful to other people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes.
0: Yes. And, and I do. And again, we, we, we're in some personal theology, but that even that aspect of, of, of God uh, things, God working things out for good. Um, as you clarified and went on, I, I tend to have a faith and it may be a good that I'll never understand. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not big enough to God. I may never understand that. It's just a faith aspect in that. Um, well, Hey, thank you. I knew you would, um, you would do justice to that gigantic question. <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, it's an age old question, but it just is. And it still matters. And I see it one that we can give a head nod to. And yet in our own lives, I see a lot of people who, who still stumble on it. Me included, uh, many times. So thank you, um, Mitch. The next one's relationships and to ask you what you value in relationships. You even shared in our first talk together that, uh, obviously, uh, more than paradigm shifting, theology shifting, doctrine shifting, absolutely everything shifting to have gone through what you have uh, gone through. But you mentioned that in regards to relationships in the first show of looking at them with obviously a gravity that comes with knowing what it's like to lose one out of the yeah. blue the next day uh, has got to have taken your value and multiplied it uh, uh infinity fold. But so tell, tell me how that feels like for you today.
1: Well, I think that number ones, as we talked about earlier, like you, you can't believe that you're never going to encounter the loss of someone close to you because the reality on the ground is you are going to like, you're, you're going to like whoever's listening out there, whatever age you are, you're going to lose a parent, a spouse, a child, a sibling in your lifetime. You will. And if not, it's because you got hit by a bus and they lost one. And so that's, it's going to happen. And so I think that the number one thing that happened after we lost Mitch is we said of our family. And in fact, we didn't, we didn't talk about this yet, but we buried our son on the day that our first granddaughter was born. right, And so this is this big cataclysmic, event in your life you're burying your child and this big cataclysmic event your daughter's having her first child and you're not there and she can't be at the funeral right because she's having a baby and her brother's getting buried and she can't be there and just all this horrible stuff happening and wonderful stuff at the same time it's all jumbled up but what it did for all of us is to say we have to value every moment that we are gifted with the people in our lives. Like we have to value it because it can be taken from you immediately. Like it, as quick as it takes somebody to bleed out from their carotid artery being severed, that's how fast your life can change. And, and it will, that's, that's the thing. It's not, it's not whether it will happen it will happen to you at some point in your life, in some way in your life, you're going to go through these things. So you better figure out how to be ready for it so that you can still have a life that means something when it does happen.
0: You wrote in the book, I, I believe you did, and then you mentioned it before that you um, communicate with your family daily. Does that still happen in the email or, or, or some some fashion?
1: Yeah, for the most part. Um You know, I mean, it's it's been 10 years and kids grow up and they have babies and they get jobs and they move and it's life happens. and, And so, so nobody stays the same all the time, but we have a much more, um, connected family than we did. I think we were all, um busy and going our own ways. And, and we're just a normal family before this happened. And and I think after we just have a much tighter sense of, Hey, you better, you better sort each other out and you better value this gift that you've been given of a family. Okay. Th- that's where I was going next
0: is, uh, aside from our, along with an increased communication and engagement, I was going to ask to what you just said right there, sorting it out. You better sort things out that I would guess that it's not just communicating more often, but that with that reality on your heart that you could lose that person the next day that we all could, that what you are communicating, are there some things that stand out like I, I at, at any moment, I want my kid, my spouse, my friend, whatever, I want them to know what is it. What they mean to me. I want them to know what I experience of them in the world. I want to know. I had this discussion recently, so it's freshly of of this thought. It was actually after talking with Jordan Grummet uh, that I talked with you about the hospice talk yeah. and thinking that I want my kids to know if I were to be gone tomorrow, that can I even in a sense of of giving them a blessing of saying, "This is what I experience of you. This is what I hope for you." that I would want them to always know that if I need to revisit it every quarter uh twice a year uh, on the holidays whatever but but to communicate something of that gratitude did that happen to you within this
1: absolutely um one thing that that burns away quickly is the superficial stuff like I have and this is a personality change frankly after I lost Mitch like I have zero superficial or social only friends in my life. I don't have time for that. Like if we're going to be friends, I'm going to know you. I'm going to know what you like and what you hate. And, and I'm going to know your, your faults and your flaws. And you're going to know mine. And we are going to be deep with each other. And with our kids is we call each other out. We we don't um, allow discomfort to keep us from talking about something we want to make sure that it's sorted out all the time because you just don't know Like i see it in my practice as a neurosurgeon kevin it's so tragic it, in fact it's almost every time when grandma has the aneurysm and she's on the ventilator and she's she's not going to make it and they need to take the they need to pull the plug because she's basically gone and she's suffering and all that stuff there's almost inevitably there's a there's a daughter or a son or a grandchild or an ex spouse who shows up, who's like, no, you've got to fight. You got to keep her alive because I never said I'm sorry for it. we never solved that problem. We never got we never fixed that thing. And And there's some unresolved issue in the family. That prevents them from being able to say goodbye or agree properly or or move on with the the situation and make good decisions on behalf of the person who's injured or sick. And so that means that I see it every day in my practice and I have to see it in my family, too, like like your 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 kids having a hard time you better help them figure that out your your spouse is just going through something you better get involved in that and don't just hope it gets better because you might get that phone call tomorrow like you, you really might and for me it's like we did like the the subset of parents listening out there who are bereaved and have lost somebody i'm so sorry but most of you have not gotten that phone call and most of you haven't lost your spouse yet and most of you haven't found out you had a fatal brain cancer yet, but some of those things are going to happen to somebody listening out there. And so just make sure that you put your life together in such a way that every day moves you a little closer to that goal of having your family squared away and having your your stuff handled because you don't know if you're going to get another chance to do it or not.
0: it is it would it be relevant to say you don't want any you know in essence you don't want a day to end where you would have regrets of what you didn't of what was left unsaid
1: yeah i think that's right and and again i'm not I'm not handling that perfectly in my life, but it's an ideal and it's something we're striving for. And we're, and I mean, each of my kids would say, well, he didn't call me as often as I want him to, you know, that's true of everybody, but, but the, the, the the reality that you need to be making this progress is there and it's very palpable all the time. And that's what, that's kind of what's happened to us is like, we got to get, better than we were and we've got to make progress and we got to make sure our kid every single one of my kids has heard me say this is what i love about you and this is what i see in you that i think you need to sharpen up and this is what i pray about for you like they all have heard that and they hear it a lot and they get sick of it (laughs) It's like, because you know what, there's stuff I didn't say to Mitch that I wish I had said to him. And there's things I did say to him that I wish I hadn't said. And so another important thing, each of our kids has heard me say, I am really sorry for this period of your life when I was working too much or um, wasn't noticing what you were feeling or that I said this thing to you when you were in the eighth grade that put a label on you that I wish I hadn't said to you. You need to hear me say that wasn't true because I've got some some things you do too. Everybody has some memory in their mind of something that somebody said to them. Um, I remember my dad, my dad's an incredible guy. And by the way, he was a huge Zig Ziglar fan. Yeah. Like he had round to it's that we all carried around when I was in the fifth grade. You know, we, you gotta get around to it. Everybody had that. So, and if you don't know what that is, Kevin will tell you. So, <laughs> remember the round to it. Um, anyway, my dad is a wonderful, godly man. And when I was eight years old, I stepped on a belt buckle that I had left on the floor of my bathroom and it pierced the heel of my foot and, and cut me and I was hopping around and crying and and my dad said, came kind of running. in and what happened? And I said, so I stepped on the belt buckle and he said, well, dummy, why'd you do that? Why'd you leave it on the floor? And I'm telling you right now, I am a board certified brain surgeon. I hold two United States patents. I have published three books with major publishers. I, am objectively not a dummy but when i do something silly mm-hmm. to this day at 54 years old the first thought i think is you moron like mm-hmm. you idiot why did you do that and it goes back to that childhood wound of hearing my father label me a dummy and he doesn't think i'm dumb like he's my biggest fan like he, but that that word wired a synapse in my brain that comes out now you know, 45 years later. And and I'm only saying that to say this, like we need to be incredibly careful with our words because they become synapses in our kids' brains. And once you realize that you've made one of those, you need to get after making them hear you say that was not true what I said to you wasn't true. It's not how I see you. It's not what I think about of you. It doesn't define you. And I am sorry that I put that on you and please get it out of there because it's not true. And they need to hear you say that. And that's one thing I know is all my kids have heard that sort of behavior from me. Like, like here's some things I ought to have told you that you need to shape up on. And here's some stuff I said to you that you need to forgive me for because I wasn't right. And I was working too much and too busy and too stressed out. And I said some stuff I shouldn't have said and all that kind of thing. And so that that's an evolutionary process that happened for me after losing a son that has refined me and bettered me in some ways. And I can tell you right now, you said it earlier, all of the good that's come out of it. I would trade it all right now. If I could have Mitch back every bit of it, I would trade it, but that's not the truth.
0: I do want to pull out something you said a minute ago. uh Cause I just appreciate it. And you said, In regards to the value that you have for relationships, you're not handling it all perfectly, but it's an ideal. That's a great premise for this entire, this show, this part two that I do with every guest where we're talking about the values and habits is these are things that we are striving to do. It's an ideal we are trying to live. And yet every day goes by and we, I still look at the 80, 20 rule a, a lot. You know, I hope that 80% yeah. I'm living up to the ideal. The other 20% I'm not, it's, it's not a, a militant. It's not an absolute. It's not a certainty, but it is an ideal. I'm striving to So thank you for, uh um, it's a great, again, premise for the entire show. Um, yeah. health and wellness is next, just your own personal health and wellness. <clears throat> and if memory serves last time we talked, I didn't even go back and see what the date was three years, four years. When did, when did, uh, When did I see in the end of you come out?
1: It was 2020. I think we talked a little after that, the book released. So it was sometime in 2020, it was before we moved to Nebraska, which was in June of 2020. So it was sometime in the spring of 2020.
0: Okay. So a few years ago, memory serves you and your wife. Is it Lisa? Yeah. Um, Had gotten recently Peloton. Um, Yeah, that's right. I got it. Okay. All right, well, so tell me what's going on well I'll say the value I mean again you know having a traumatic event often alters the values that we have uh even in this area too, so health and wellness where Where is your value for yourself right now?
1: Well, I'll tell you um so <clears throat> after we lost mitch we two years after that, almost two years, we moved to Wyoming from Alabama, um and the move was partly um business because private practice was really expensive and, and I became an employed physician and <clears throat> part of it was adventure. We wanted to change the scenery. It was hard to be in the house where Mitch had grown up and, and it was just everywhere all the time and it was just really hard. So we we thought maybe moving would help and, and, um, it was silly cause you know, your grief is going to move with you obviously. And then it was almost worse cause now we were in a place where he was never, and so we had all these touchstones before where I could say, Oh, I remember that time we did this with mention over there and we played football over there. And in new Wyoming, it was none of that. I had nothing, no, no memory whatsoever. But so in the process of all that moving and starting a new practice and moving to another place, we got really inactive for a while. And we were both pretty athletic. I wasn't an athlete, but I was always a runner and you know, tried to stay in shape. And Lisa's tremendous athlete. Um, almost made the junior Olympics in swimming when she was a kid. Yeah. Um, she's just a really good athlete, <clears throat> but always been super active. And then just basically just stopped when we moved to Wyoming. It was on call all the time and it was cold and it was just, I just quit doing anything and I gained a bunch of weight. And and so 2019 just said, I am getting back in shape. So we bought Peloton treadmill, Peloton bike, lost I think 30 pounds and kind of got into it. And then the quarantine happened. Right and Then the, coronavirus thing and everything shut down and all you did all day was DoorDash and watch the news and like I you know it just kind of got inactive again. And then when we moved here um a bunch of things became clear and that was like okay guess what when I was 35 I could just start running again and I would immediately get back in shape and I'd be running seven and seven thirty miles again and all that stuff. And when you're 50 it ain't that way. Like it takes longer. It's harder. Everything is more, you know, more difficult. And, and you really have to then say, okay, I used to be able to eat a pizza and a bag of Cheetos and go for a 5k run and still lose five pounds that week. And I can't do that anymore. Like my, my life, my body is not doing that anymore. I'm 54 years old. And so I've I've become Lisa and I both have become much more diligent about understanding the biochemistry of what we eat understanding the the neurochemistry what what we eat does to your gut and your brain and your joint axis and all that science is so clear now that you you need to know what you're putting in your body and a big switch that i made was food is designed by your creator to fuel your body and your body's processes it's not designed to entertain you or comfort you or numb you to something that you don't want to feel so you just eat um and your body is a is a machine that's designed to be optimized with a certain amount of calories and a certain amount of protein and all that that kind of stuff. So I started really. Lisa and I both have started really diligently trying to obey those principles of biochemistry and obey those principles of science to try to get in, into healthier shape. And I feel better right now than I've felt in years. And another big piece of it is we, we just don't drink alcohol anymore. And we used to drink a little bit, um, you know, have a glass of wine or have, have some uh, Manhattan or something once in a while. And what I realized is the, the science is, is crystal clear that every proposed benefit of alcohol that you've heard about, reduction in cardiovascular risk and all that, all of it's false. Almost every one of those proposed benefits, if you really look at the studies where they propose them, is filtered highly to make the point they were trying to make or the studies were sponsored by a company that sells alcohol. There, There is no health benefit to alcohol. Alcohol is a class A carcinogen involved in at least seven human cancers. It's a direct neurotoxin. It does not do anything good for your body at all. So it, does, it doesn't mean it's not okay to have some once in a while. It just means you need to have the cognitive dissonance erased in your mind that it's doing something beneficial for you because it's not. If you think it makes you more more of a great conversationalist it really doesn't it just makes everybody else dumber so they think you're a better talker than you are right it it doesn't make you more attractive it doesn't make you healthier It, it doesn't so if you choose to use it you like how it makes you feel that's fine and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it i'm saying for me i decided i'm a brain science expert and i know in the operating room we don't pour alcohol on the brain because it kills neurons We don't allow it on the field. We don't have alcohol, isopropyl alcohol anywhere near craniotomies because it kills the brain. But then we go out to dinner and we drink martinis and that gets in your bloodstream and goes to your brain. And guess what it does? It kills neurons. Right. So I just had to say, wait, if I want to be healthier and I want to be happier, I just need to, to be congruent with what i know to be true from science and 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 get rid of stuff that harms me and and like i said earlier in our first conversation relentlessly refuse to participate in my own demise and so i know that if i put the wrong stuff in my body i don't feel good the next day it hampers my habits and you and your habits need to be enabled by you to be more successful. An old friend of mine, Rob Hatch used to say, put success in your way. So he would say, if you want to work out tomorrow morning, put your workout clothes and your gym shoes on the, on the floor next to your bed instead of your pajamas. So that when the first thing you do is you get in your dress in your workout clothes and eliminates one little barrier, to working out that day. And so you put success in your way. So that's the long answer to your questions. I've tried to build some habits and systems to reflect the things that I know to be true that are good for me and to follow through with them and to try to enable myself to to protect my ability to get those things done. And one one of them is make some safety choices around food and alcohol. If you think it's bad for you, don't have it in your house just move it out of your house. So it's, it's harder for you to fall into those habits that you've had before. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, along those same lines, just use the word protect. I'll take us to the next category, which is just your mind. Uh, you just mentioned that your brain, that's your, that's your alley right there mm-hmm. is, you know, the mind and mental health. You know, that we're at a, you know, a mental health crisis we're seeing diseases of despair at a, an all-time high, it seems. So we'll start though with yeah, what you are doing. And so, gosh, it feels like our whole conversation has been around this, especially our, our initial conversation together, but what you do to protect your mind. And I even like to say your mental state, the mental state that Lee wants yeah. to be in today. What are you doing? What are you doing there?
1: Well, so... I want to give you a, a, something to think about that, that I don't, we didn't talk about, I don't write it about in my book, but it's something that, that's really important and that we've recently become aware of this science, of course, neuroplasticity, everybody's talking about neuroplasticity nowadays, but there's also a, a science that's been kind of coming along in the last 10 or 15 years called epigenetics. Mm-hmm. And so you got neurobiology, which is what happens to your body when your brain changes and then you've got epigenetics which is sort of what happens to your cells and your dna in response to the thoughts feelings experiences and and surroundings of the things that happen in your life and then you've got neuroplasticity which is and neurogenesis which really go together so the the lie that was told or the the inaccurate thought that we had up until about 2004, and uh, we were all taught this as neuroscientists and neurosurgeons training, that you can't make new neurons, your brain is what it is, and you, you can't change it, so you better protect it. That's how we were all taught. In 2004, they discovered the fact that your brain actually does make new neurons, particularly in the hippocampus and some other areas, and so you you do have the capability of generating new brain cells. And then neuroplasticity is the fact that you can change how the cells in your brain connect. So there's hundreds of millions of cells in your brain and there's trillions of synapses and those synapses control everything about you. Kevin Miller, everything you are is the result of a whole bunch of synapses in your brain that pr- that, that program the way that you respond to certain events, feelings, thoughts and surrounding events in your life. All of you is about synapses, okay? So when you say, what does Lee Warren do to protect his mind? Here's here's where that comes out for me. I realized that everything I think about changes the chemical state of my brain, and that changes the hormonal state of my body because neurotransmitters control hormone release, and hormones control the behavior of cells in your body. And so when you change your hormonal state, you change the way your cells operate. And then the really cool thing about epigenetics and neurobiology is that your brain and your body are super smart in that when you surround your cells with a high level of a particular neurotransmitter or a particular hormone, your next generation of cells that are generated. So when your cells divide, they have more receptors for the hormones that they're surrounded by. So they become more sensitive to them. So, if you stay in a high stress state all the time, your cells over time become more sensitive to cortisol and the stress hormones, and you start becoming primed to be stressed out all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're creating that reality in the biology of your body. And here's the scary part you got nine kids, so you need to hear that. How's your youngest child? 11. <clears throat> okay. So you, you're probably done having kids, but. For your kids, kids, they need to hear this. This has been proven in mice. We'll start with mice. In, in mice, they did a study in Japan where they exposed mice to the smell of cherry blossoms, which apparently is a really powerful smell. And mice will twitch their nose, hairs, and they really react to it. And when they could see that the mice were reacting to the smell of cherry blossoms, they would shock their brains, give them a painful stimulus. And over time, the mice, of course, became afraid of the smell of cherry blossoms. And here's the fascinating and terrifying part. They found that the offspring of those mice were also afraid of the smell of cherry blossoms, even though they had never been shocked when they smelled cherry blossoms and that fear persisted to four generations. And then they found that there were genetic changes in the cells of the fourth generation that coded for the fear response in response to the smell of cherry blossoms which means that the things you're scared of kevin and the things you're hurt by your kids and your grandkids and their kids are also going to be programmed to be scared of and hurt by which is kind of terrifying the good news is they could train it back out of them so the sperm cells of these male mice that were scared of cherries contain changes in their genetic code that were passed on to three generations but they could teach those younger mice not to be afraid of cherry blossoms anymore they, they could train that out of them so it's, and the, the genetics would change and their offspring weren't afraid of them which is really cool and that sounds well that's great it's mice what does it have to do with us they studied holocaust survivors and they found i think it's something like nine different i'm mis, probably misquoting this but some some high number nine or ten genes that are different in this offspring of Holocaust survivors than they are in people who were not exposed to that type of trauma. And they did the same experiments in Vietnam veterans with PTSD and their children and children's children and fourth generation have genetic differences and cortisol response and all kinds of different measurables as opposed to people that weren't exposed to those traumas, which means really in true human studies now, we know that what you're injured by passes on to your children. And so that has to do a lot with what you think and how you feel and how you choose to respond and all of that stuff. So when you say, how does Lee Warren protect his mind? I'm now aware. So again, I'm sorry I'm giving you such a long answer to these questions. I am acutely aware that I need to be a better self brain surgeon than I am an actual brain surgeon in the operating room, because everything I think about changes the biology of my body and that affects the people around me and it will create generational issues in my family and my children. Children, If I don't get it squared away from me. And so I need to think better. I need to control the things that happen inside my ears. And I need to be a a trainer of my offspring and my grandchildren that what they think about changes how they live and it changes how their bodies behave and it changes how their great grandkids live.
0: Hey, thank you uh for that long answer. And I I got to tell you Lee, <laughs> that study that study on the mice blows me away and it's actually in my book. Uh so my book what drives you I used that study and it was yeah, it was dramatic and and I was actually initially interested in it from the other direction not only what i'm passing down but the things ahead of me when i look at propensities that i have today yep. and think, yep. why do i have that i did not experience- it's not all your I fault know. i didn't experience the holocaust you know i That's i was right. shocked when i had the smell of blueberries uh or, or cherries and uh and and to look at that my brother and i just last just yesterday were talking about my my father shared a struggle a bad perception he had around money growing up yeah and my brother and i are very aware that we had that perception too we didn't experience the same things his did he did we didn't experience what our his his parents did and yet to look at yeah. the genetic and i like to look at them as set points as you said they don't limit us or they don't have to limit us but it is a set point. So let's get it out on the table and say, yeah, for yep. some reason, man, I'm scared to death of the smell of cherries. We can work on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even though it has, it didn't happen. We didn't experience it personally. So um, goodness. Yeah. Thank you uh, immensely. Uh, the next category here is work, career. Yeah. And a business, and to look at what you value there. As you talked about, you have a lot going on. You are a working, you know, brain surgeon. You are an author. You are a podcaster. And I'm sure the list goes on of the things. You are a father and you have a lot of different roles, a lot of things you're doing. So when you look at it, you've got a lot of opportunities. You've got a new book coming out, or, you know, this book is coming out. And uh, how do you set this is what I value? And from that keeps you on the path you want to be.
1: Yeah, so I'm a I'm a great case study of that. Um this is going to shock you. This will be shocking to everyone listening. Neurosurgeons are control freaks, man. We're <laughs> shocking. <laughs> shocking news, right? Mm-hmm. Stop the presses. I mean, I, I was this type A like this hardcore um I was never really a prima donna, I don't think. People maybe say differently, but I was, when you're, when you're a neurosurgeon resident. can
0: be when you are a brain surgeon.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the, here's the deal. Um, And I think it's true of heart surgeons and and all kinds of people who are, and probably, probably athletes too. I mean, you probably had some of this, like if you're going to do something that's right on the edge between dangerous and reckless, Right. You need to do something to save somebody's life. And the thing that you need to do is really dangerous because you could straight up kill them or paralyze them in the attempt to do that thing. Then you have to have a pretty high amount of confidence that you can pull that thing off or you ought not to be doing it. And so the reason the the, the way you get to that confidence is and I see it, I, I could see it clearly as a game. Once I finished my training, I could see what they did to us in training. They break you down and make you feel like the dumbest person in the world. And then they start really praising you. Man, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a resident make that move as well as you just did that. And over five or six or seven or eight years, by the time you graduate every single neurosurgery resident that's ever graduated with, with a few exceptions, somebody has pulled them aside and said, Kevin, you're the, I'm not going to tell everybody this, but you're the best resident we've ever trained. Like you're, you, you there's something special about you, man, you've got this thing that nobody else has. And I think they do that because you're about to go out on your own and you're about to cut somebody's head open and not kill them. Right. And you've got to believe that you, man, nobody can do this as well as I can do it. Like nobody can. Cause if you believe, if you found out tomorrow, you're about to have your heart valve replaced and you found out that your surgeon felt like they were the eighth or ninth best surgeon in the Denver area you would say, maybe I should go. Who do you think is the first one? Right. Maybe I should go to that guy or that lady. Right. So you want your surgeon to think they're the best one in the, in the world to take care of you. And so before I went to Iraq, I was pretty wrapped up in that. I'm this guy who can do this thing and nobody can do this thing the way I can do it. And then I went to Iraq and I got bombed and mortared and just, I, I just, Got my world kind of reset. That's what my first book was about. You no know, my time in Iraq and after and I came home from that saying, I am barely able to manage myself when I'm under great stress, and the only reason I can save people's lives is because I've been given a gift and a great amount of training and i and I just reframed my thought process around why I could do the things that I do. And and what they meant, and so all of that to say, hmm. especially after Mitch died, but really from the time in 2010 or so, I had a really bad PTSD kind of flare up, and it just kind of messed me up for a little while, and all that stuff from Iraq that I, like you said earlier, I just kind of stuffed down inside me and didn't talk about it, and then it all came kind of roaring out, and between that time and and shortly after we lost Mitch, I was was working on not being such a workaholic type a. A hard charger. I was trying to get myself a little bit more balanced. But what happened after Mitch died is I said, I need to be a physician and not just a surgeon. I need to be somebody who tries to help people heal and find hope and have purpose and meaning even if I can't fix their tumor or save their life. And and it just changed the the way I see the value of my work. So my work no longer is about getting the case done faster than somebody else could have or losing less blood. I still want to do all those things and I still want to be the best. I want my patients to say, yeah, he's the best one. but I, But I don't think of that as being what makes me a good person anymore. What I think makes me a good person if I am is that I care about you. And I want you to have a life that means something. And if I can navigate, help you navigate this hardest thing that you're ever going to go through in a way that makes you able to deal with it, regardless of the medical outcome, then I think I'm a really good physician. And so having that kind of paradigm shift and then losing a son really kind of stratified everything for me. I'm a Christian who believes I get to see my son again if I follow that path. I'm a family person. And that's the most important thing because it can be taken away from me. And my job enables me to be important to people in their hardest hours, but it doesn't define who I am anymore.
0: Hmm. That's tremendous. Going back to physician, isn't the definition teacher? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it's so interesting, what the, the training that you went through psychologically to do what you do, uh, not to poke fun at it. My best friend is an, a medical doctor and yeah. his line was something like, you know what they call the you know person who got the lowest grade in their graduating class? Yeah. Doctor. 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 <laughs> We're not going to know what that grade is. We're just going to see the diploma up there. Uh, thank goodness. That is tremendous. I, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine the gravity and the headiness that comes with knowing that you have a life in your hand over and over and over, um, which is, you know, talk about redemption and refining what is That's right. giving you the insight uh, that you have today. Thank you, Lee. Um, the next category is money, uh, finances uh, wealth, which is, uh, an interesting, you know, we, we talked about Arthur Brooks and that you just got the book strength to strength and looking at that second half of life. And, uh, he, he was the second person in a short amount of time. Uh, he's in his, I think he's, uh, my, my guess is he's 58. You said you're 54. I'm 52. Yeah. And, um, talked about that and, and how he views money, different, even possessions and finds himself wanting to simplify uh, you know, these days, however, you just said you just moved to Nebraska or not long ago, you, know, you know, not, not too awfully long ago. You're on about 300 acres, uh, which is, well, that's, that's, that's grade a possessions, uh, up there for, yeah. I, I live up in a national forest as well. But so when you look at today, money and finances and wealth and even possessions, I like to put that in there. What would you say your values are?
1: Oh, I think that the key is that, that that I've learned over time is that time and experiences are far more valuable than bank accounts and possessions that because those things can be taken from you and memories cannot be. um, So time with your kids, time with your grandkids experiences and and traveling and and, and visiting and, and sitting with people is of immensely greater value than anything that we can accumulate or, invest in our lifetime that being said the bible says a good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren and i think it's important for us to to be good stewards of the things that we're given and it's important to us to to leave behind something for the next generation and, and you know it ha- having a a loose hands generosity sort of spirit about you i think always pays more dividends the bible says if you if you're um kind and generous that the Lord will reward you for that. And, and I've always found like, I can't seem to outgive prosperity. Like I, 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 if it doesn't matter how generous we are, how much we give away, it, God always just seems to favor us and, and and take care of us. And we, and we have what we need. And I've never been, um, I've, I've never doubted for a second that I would not end up being okay. Um, am I going to die a multimillionaire? Probably not but my grandkids will, (laughs) you know what I mean? I'm I'm just, I want to leave it on the field. I want to make sure I'm a good steward of the things that I'm given. I want to make sure that I don't buy things to have things, but rather invest and give away so that I have memories and experiences and people who are bettered because I was on the planet. And so that's, that's how I think I look at it.
0: Uh. Last category here, Lee, is is just personal interests. Uh, I'm always curious about the things that you do. I mean, I know that your work is life giving and inspirational and whatnot, but even if we look at it on on somewhat of the non productive side, some of the things that you do that just inspire you, that just bring joy and inspiration to you, what would fall on the list?
1: Well, I think. Um... I really love my wife. I love, I love spending time with her and conversing with her. And she's even after all these years, I still find her to be the most interesting person I ever talked to. So number one is time with her. and, And I value that. Um, we, and our, of course our children and grandchildren, um, but we don't live close to any of our children right now so we're in this position where i see my dogs more often than i see my kids which is is not not the place i want to always be in but um we have two crazy german short-haired pointers who are three years old and they run around these 300 acres and great, i find great joy in watching them um bring muskrats or gophers to the house and mm-hmm. trying to get inside with them and, and all that i love to fish and i love to, to play the guitar and uh, music's very important to me um in fact talk about we talked earlier about little t traumas yeah. s- small things that really hurt people and um three years ago um i fired a shotgun um trying to scare off some birds that were messing up our backyard We had this huge swarm of blackbirds that were tearing the yard up it's crazy so i went and just fired a shotgun trying to scare them off and i didn't pay attention to the fact that I was standing close to a brick wall and I've always been really careful with firearms and safety and all that but this day for whatever reason I didn't put on hearing protection and I blew up my left ear and um, really damaged my hearing in that ear and and it has a kind of a rattly quality to it in certain um, frequencies and that has made my joy of playing the guitar significantly less than it ever has been It, it doesn't feel good to me anymore. This is a silly thing, yeah. but it's it's a little T trauma that changed the the something that I really valued which was playing music and listening to music and it took joy out of that for me. Yeah. And I had to learn how to 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 appreciate listening to music again because it's different for me than it used to be. The, the nuances of what I can hear and and when I play I see now. I try to make sure other people are enjoying what I play. Hmm. Uh, just, just getting to say that you know th- this is one of those little t traumas that that really um, made me sad because that used to be one of the things I did to find solace. And when I was thinking about Mitch, you know, I was playing my guitar and, I, and it was you know, I would worship and pray and and that part doesn't feel the same anymore and so i think i think that's a good example of some of those things we were talking about earlier is is it the end of the world no um but it but it matters it changed it changed it changed the dynamic of one of the ways that i used to recreate yeah and now when i'm busy and working and i want to take a little time i don't usually reach for my guitar because it isn't as fun for me as it was three years ago
0: yeah i that even just that
1: Somewhat could
0: seem benign statement. It matters is something that I've missed with a lot of the, uh, a lot of the traumas, a lot of the, the massives in my life that may have seemed small, and I didn't give them enough credit. So now my my therapist says, Kevin, just sit with it. Don't medicate, sit with just it, sit with it. Don't have a glass of wine. Don't even go on a bike ride. Just sit and actually feel it. It matters. Um, man, I am just grateful for the time with you, Lee, grateful for the, the message, grateful for your heart and your insight. And, uh, as we talked about the refinement and redemption of the traumas that you've gone through that are lift us up. So thank you. Thanks again for the time. It's been a complete gift and honor.
1: Thank you. I feel the same way, Kevin. It's such a treasure to be back with you and look forward to having you on my show in a few days. Likewise.
0: Well, again, that was Dr. Lee Warren, and his upcoming book is Hope is the First Dose, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. You can find him at wleewarrenmd.com. In my next episode, part three in the series, I bring you Richie Norton to talk about this issue. Uh, He's a tremendously influential guy and someone else who has lost a child. And the show is not about the death of children. Uh, That's not the point. It's about how we all deal with loss and pain and recovery. And Richie's insight into this is just tremendous. It's one of the more profound talks I think I've had. So uh, I hope you will join us for the next episode. Friends, thank you for tuning into Self Helpful, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others.